In this episode, we talk with Michael Lazar, partner at McKinsey & Co., one of the world's largest consultant agencies. Michael spills all about the role consulting firms play today in the tech industry, his thoughts on the future of work, and why he's bullish on Web3. Let's get to it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. This is Sam here, and we're back with another episode of Launch AMA. Today, I am joined all the way from New York by Michael Lazar, a partner at McKinsey & Co. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. It looks, uh, it looks pretty cold outside. It is. That is uh, it's not too bad. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe 40 degrees. You know, uh, not, not too bad. 40 degrees. I have to do some mental math in my head. Like four, four Celsius. <laughs> it's, okay, that's... That's okay. We, we've seen worse, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. So just, just for everybody tuning in live, just some quick housekeeping. If you guys do have questions, feel free to pump them into the Q&A or, or raise your hand or something. Um, let us know. We're going to be talking this entire time, but that doesn't mean you can't be asking questions. This is an AMA where you're, you're free to ask Michael anything you wish. Um, but just to kind of get things rolling right off the bat, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit, maybe your background working in technology. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as Sam mentioned, Michael Lazar, I am a partner with McKinsey here in New York. I am a leader in our tech and software practice. Um, have spent, I don't know, the last eight years at McKinsey, eight, eight and a half years, uh, working mostly in tech and software. Uh, I also have a public sector background. So I worked in DC uh, at the intersection of policy, politics, business, and government for many years. And so, uh, you know, had some time there. Um, did a little stint in venture capital. Um, as Sam knows, also quite involved in sort of Web3, NFT, blockchain uh, communities. Um, so have had, yeah, have had a wide range of exposure. Um, you know, and, and at McKinsey, for those who maybe are less familiar with the management consulting field, I work with uh, clients, predominantly tech companies, and help them on growth, strategy, product, uh, new market entry, all, all those types of products, uh, types of projects, and helping them really scale their scale their businesses, grow their businesses, and try to unlock a new opportunity. Awesome. And I think I think a lot of people have heard of heard of McKinsey, but you know, never quite know where to kind of place their place it in kind of the spectrum of services that that generally speaking tech companies can provide. Um, can you kind of just describe maybe a little bit about, you know, the types of clients you work with and it's particularly for, for everybody listening. I think most, most people that are listening live or you later public on the podcast, um, they're, they're probably going to be a little bit smaller, smaller companies in terms yep. of startups, maybe, I don't know, anywhere from one person to, to a hundred people, something like that. Yep. Um, when, when would be an appropriate time for founders to kind of start looking into firms either like yours or maybe different yeah. firms? What, what is, what, when would they need a consultant? Is essentially yeah, yeah. so um, it's, it's a good question. And let me answer that more generically before I talk about sort of McKinsey. I think mm -hmm. the reason you might want a consultant is, is probably two, two, probably two or three reasons. One is, um, and, and maybe the simplest explanation and one that McKinsey often doesn't do, but is actually you know, probably the biggest driver of, of consulting sort of revenue in the industry is you just need extra arms and legs. So, um, you know, as many of you know, startup founders, <laughs> startup teams, you are always strapped for time. Time is the most valuable resource you have. You don't have the ability uh, to <laughs> split yourself into two or clone yourself uh, and you can't be in multiple places at once. And so consulting at a bare minimum uh, can often just offer extra arms and legs. 
Um, that is not how McKinsey operates, but I think a lot of consultants do that. And so if you have a special project or something you need to take on and you just don't have the expertise bandwidth, whatever it might be, consultants can be a good answer there. I think the other the other two times we get brought in are, are really around sort of two problems. One is I have a problem and I don't know how to solve it. Like truly you need expertise that you just don't have in your team or within your network and, and you're looking for someone else. And then again, there's a range of consulting firms that can help you solve that problem. So smaller boutique specialized firms to large consultancies like McKinsey all offer a range of services. And, and we can talk about that another time, although this is not a pitch meeting. I'm not trying to convince you all to come work with McKinsey, but um, they bring expertise and, and you know, uh, have seen across McKinsey, we have 30 30 to 40,000 employees, 20,000 consultants. Like we have people all around the world. If someone has probably encountered the problem you have and you know they're only a phone call away from me and I can find who that is and get that expertise to you. So one problem is I have a problem. I don't know how to solve it. I think the other one is I have a problem. I think I know how to solve it, but I'm having like stakeholder management issues where I really need like a third party to validate that this is the right course. Like this is a major decision that we're making and we don't want to get it wrong. And that is often, frankly, another reason why consultants get brought in. And that's one, frankly, where McKinsey or BCG or Bain or other sort of you know top tier consulting firms get brought in um, in corporate you know corporate environments, Fortune 500 environments. Because if you're the SVP of sales and you're about to launch a new product and your CEO is expecting you to generate $100 million in revenue on that product, you, you want to make sure that your plan is solid. If not, you know, your head's on the chopping block, so to speak. And so uh, we get brought in a lot to validate plans, make sure that they've sort of ticked and tied and, and have the right approach to actually achieve goals. Um, so that's sort of the range of things. Now, McKinsey specifically has sort of, I would say, two, two models. One is our traditional consulting model. Um, and, you know, we would work with companies called a billion dollars in revenue and up. We actually dip a little below that in the tech practice, maybe $500 million in revenue and up. Um, and, and that's like the traditional, you're used to strategy consulting or, you know, Salesforce effectiveness or whatever the specific problem is you want solved, you come to us. Increasingly, we're understanding that it's important to be involved earlier in the, the tech ecosystem in the life cycle. Um, we've, we have a practice we call Fuel. Um, you know, creative name there around, uh, uh, you know, fast growth tech companies that are on the rise. And we work with a slightly different model to sort of dip lower in that um, ecosystem. But again, I think it's really hard to justify the, uh, the spend on our, our, you know, on the McKinsey team, you know, unless it's a major decision for a company with maybe under $100 million in revenue, just because we're so expensive. It uh, doesn't mean you can't go somewhere else. doesn't mean you can't work with someone else. Uh, there are tons of consultants out there, but we tend to focus on sort of, I would call it mid-market and enterprise customers as opposed to uh, small, very early stage startups. Fair enough and appreciate the honesty. Um, I think something that's kind of equally as interesting for for those that are listening on right now is is the fact that a lot of your your clientele are, are could be governments, could be mid-market enterprises. We kind of talked a little bit about that. Um, in your kind of experience, you obviously deal with these, what I will quote unquote, larger corporations, but at the same time, you're also trying to get your boots on the ground, talking and advising to startups at a very high level, just as, as we're jumping in, like, what do you kind of see as the difference between the two types? Um, I mean, there's some obvious differences, um, but also more specifically, what can startups learn from how, you know, your usual clientele operate? Yeah. I mean, you know, I may not answer your question directly, but I'll, I'll try no to I'll try to paraphrase and come up with something that uh, 
that I think is an important lesson. So as I was thinking about what, what advice I might have and what I've learned over the years of working with, you know, sort of larger established tech companies, you know, if I were in your shoes as a startup, I think the thing you ought to know is large companies have a really hard time changing course. They might have more resources, they might have more people, they might have the ability to, you know, do things that you can't do uh, as a startup in some ways, but the will to change, the organizational inertia to keep going down the same path is so high and so strong. And, you know, half of my job is trying to advise my clients on why they need to do things differently than the way they're doing if they want to survive. Um, and because of that, you all have a tremendous opportunity. The ability to come in and upend an industry to find something that is underserved or, uh, you know, a, a market that is not, you know, yet met or fit with a product, um, that, that is unique and different and not something that it's easy to see from the corporate side. So if you're a large corporation, much easier to keep spending, you know, your budget plus or minus 5% year over year and just keep doing the same things than it is to really take a blank sheet of paper out and say, gosh, if I were a new entrant in this market today, what would I do differently? And, and the reason for that is, is complex. I mean, some of it is obviously just, it, you know, people are used to the way they do it. Some of it, though, is just internal organizational pressure. And I think the thing to remember is large enterprises are made up of people at the end of the day. And people have their own, you know, innate self-interest in many cases, whether they consciously or unconsciously recognize it. You know, there's a preservation instinct. If you're running a business unit, even in a dying business unit within a big company, you don't want to, you know, work yourself out of a job by suggesting you pivot your business. And so it just becomes really challenging for large companies to adapt. So if I'm a startup, I think there's really two, two things I'm thinking about. Number one, how do I go attack that vulnerability? How do I go take advantage of the fact that a large company won't be there? And, and then number two, what partnership opportunities might be out there to help me scale faster? So, you know, a lot of startups I talk to, and I do make the rounds in the New York area, I'm talking to tech startups, they're always thinking about, oh, my series A and my series B, you know, raising funds from VCs. But what other strategic investment opportunities might there be? Is there an opportunity to align yourself with a large enterprise um, that could help you accelerate your growth in a different way, it could bring different expertise where, where you can create a win-win opportunity. You can solve a problem they can't solve for themselves because their organizational inertia will prevent them from getting into a new market. And at the same time, they can bring you resources, whether it's product development or sales or who, whatever it is you need um, to help you scale faster. So I think there are good win-win opportunities there once you realize that the large companies are unlikely to actually uh, actually move into the spaces you're trying to trying to win. Yeah, and and trying to make up that example, like maybe you got an API or something that that you you're running as a third party or whatever. Um, in those kind of examples, like from a practical perspective, like how do you how do you see these partnerships being gained where it could be like a ten to twenty person team working with with an enterprise or, or, or a larger entity, like, is that, is that like our kind of traditional networking where they meet Mike one day and then like 18 years later, they strike a deal or, or like, how do you kind of see those partnerships actually being formed? Yeah, it goes, it goes a couple of different directions. Um, I mean, one, one like very recent example, one of my clients, they're, uh, 
you know, are re- they, they've been around for a long time. It took them a long time to get to scale, but they've been a software company around for maybe 30 years. I've been working with them for six or seven years. Um, and they launched a pretty new innovative product in the last year. So, you know, sort of like a startup within a company. And they basically set up a team, gave them sort of capital and said, run with this. And we, we see an opportunity to build something in an adjacent space to where we are. And their view on how to find partnership and how to go out to the market was actually quite novel, which was they asked themselves, where have they been running into competitive sales opportunities and where were they losing and who were they losing to? (laughs) And like, should we go talk to those companies and say like, gosh, you know, competitors A, B, and C are really kicking our butts in a bunch of accounts. Like maybe we should go talk to them. Like maybe we can actually collaborate with them and go to market with them um, because we can solve something they can't solve. They're, They're clearly doing something better than us in another area. And maybe in collaboration, we can do that. And they, they've they turned this from like a $10 million or so uh, business, to I think $100 million in like two or three years, just because wow. uh, they decided rather than build out our own sales force, how do we actually go out and take advantage of some of these existing competitors? And, and so it went from a competitive model to a like co-opetition. So they do compete in some accounts, but they're collaborating in others. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, the other one is, I mean, yeah, like just make yourself available. So showing up at industry events, showing up at, um, you know, networking events, and I understand COVID complicates all of that, but uh, you never know who you're going to meet. Uh, and I think going in with an open mind and, you know, getting outside your comfort zone and having some fun, like can actually lead to some really interesting connections. That's fair. In the, I guess, speaking of COVID in the last 24 months, 28 months, how have you seen these kind of, I don't want to say partnerships, but even just networking, like how are people doing it right now from your vantage point? Ooh, it's uh, it's all over the place. I mean, I think for in 2020, there was not a lot of it, right? Conferences mm-hmm. got canceled, events got canceled. I think people were more fearful. Um, I'm now seeing people returning, even, even some of my clients who have not returned to the office yet, uh, you know, they're still employees are still working remotely, are engaging in like industry association events. So I work with a health tech company, um, and I think the JP Morgan healthcare conference, which is like the big industry event in that space, uh, was actually held this January. And so they actually went and presented and did things. I don't know if it was virtual or in person actually, but like they actually went back and like re-engaged this year. And so I think finding ways to, to do that, even in the virtual format. Um, the other thing, like, and I think Sam, you know, this, we've personally connected this way, yep. you know, using social media and, and just getting out there and, and speaking to people and connecting that way can be really powerful. It's amazing. You know, the worst thing that happens is someone doesn't respond <laughs> like, you know, and this isn't to say, you know, you have your shot and take your shot or whatever, but it's, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to someone and saying, gosh, you know, I think what you're doing is interesting. And, um, it would love to connect. I, I've done that before and have had tremendous success in just getting, you know, a handful of people to respond and having some interesting conversations and building some interesting friendships. Yeah, definitely. I think in, in my own personal experience, people say yes more often than you think. And, and I think the other thing to note for, for everybody listening is the no stings less than you'd think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, like, I, I mean, I've had people respond to me and be like, uh, I can't right now I'm busy or whatever. Um, but you know, it's not that big a deal, right? Like it's, I I think there's a unrealistic fear in some of our minds when we're like, Oh, we're afraid to ask Mike, like he's going to ignore me. He's going to hate me. I'm like, the worst he's going to do is just not know you exist. Right. So, which is the default. So (laughs) no, but I think, but I think Sam, there's an interesting point there. So 
we as humans have like risk aversion, loss aversion, like in, in theory, like losses hurt more than gains feel good. And that's yeah. like, you know, been proven in psychology and economics and whatever else. Um, that said, like, you know, the, I think it's actually a fear of loss in this case that, that, that is the real issue. Like to Sam's point, someone says no, fine, whatever. Um, but you know, it, you'll, it, it'll roll off your shoulder quite quickly, but actually the more interesting thing I would put you know, and I don't know how many of you have gone to like business school or versus just, you know, are starting out um, on your own business. But the, the lesson I learned from business school and don't tell my professors this, but like the one thing I took away was if you reach out to someone with like an exciting idea or an offer to like have a conversation, people say yes. And the reason they say yes is they're probably just as interested in meeting you as you are in meeting them. Like, if you're an entrepreneur doing something interesting and have a novel way of trying to solve a problem or introducing a product to solve a, you know, a market challenge or whatever, or market inefficiency, like that person you're reaching out to is probably fascinated to hear your story too. So don't go in thinking that like someone else is on a pedestal or, or doesn't, you know, you're asking something from them, like nine out of 10 times, you're going to give them as much or more value in that interaction than, than you extract from it. Like you might get advice, you might get, you know, some networking, whatever it is you're looking for, but they're getting that too. And they're going to learn something about what you're doing that might help them in their job that might open doors for them in the future. So, so don't underestimate sort of the value you bring as being a smart person with an interesting idea. That's super fair and valid. So speaking of people that have reached out to, to you over, over the years, like like I kind of hinted at the beginning, like you, you do talk to, to a lot of um, younger startups and kind of, especially around New yeah. York area, you're, you're re- there, I'm, they're reaching out to you, you're reaching out to them, whatnot. Um, but also in your day to day, like a big part of your job is, is trying to help people with their growth strategies, right? Now kind of trying to combine the two together. I know one of the things we talked about in terms of the advantages of being a startup, being a smaller company is that speed. But how, as, as they go, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of pinpoint an example here because we can go over the spectrum, like say around the Series A or area, like how important is it to be like, okay, here's my next five years of my company versus like having that flexibility and speed to pivot depending on what they see as they kind of scale? Yeah, it probably depends upon the ask. Um, I think it's a, it's a really important question, actually. Um, so I spent yesterday three hours. I mentioned this. I don't know if this was when people were on yet or not. It might have been in our pre-chat. But um, yeah, I spent three hours yesterday with a VC partner and a social enterprise, two co-founders who are trying to use Web3 to uh, solve some like employment-related challenges. Think about like, you know, and you can feel someone can, I don't know if I should let you guys have the exact idea, but think about like yep. Uniswap for talent, right? Like, could you create a decentralized marketplace to help people um, match into jobs better. Right. Cool idea. Who knows if it'll work, whatever. But the interesting conversation and in, in where I think the VC partner and I were able to help this social enterprise, which is that, you know, was simplifying the message. So they have like a five-year vision of all this stuff they want to build. And I think as they presented it to me, I understood the vision and got lost in sort of the presentation itself. And simplicity and clarity is much more important than, you know, the grand vision sometimes. So I find if someone's coming to me, whether it's, you know, an investment ask or trying to pitch me on a an idea or a concept, like make it clear, like, what is the market you're going after? 
like why, what is the challenge? Like it's basically situation, complication, resolution. What's the, what's the market in the situation? What's the complication? What isn't working and how are you going to solve it? But not like the 10 year work plan. I don't need the, you know, and by the way, one day this leads to whatever, give, give me enough that I'm excited and inspired and want to learn more and let me ask questions. And the second I'm asking questions, I'm hooked, right? The second I'm able to engage and say, well, tell me how you do that. You have all the answers and you can tell me all those answers, but don't, you know, you don't need to get every last detail into the presentation because we'll just get lost going through the presentation and I won't remember what the problem is we're trying to solve in the first place. Mm-hmm. And do you find that when when hiring, that, that kind of goes as well? Is it the same kind of what you just described? I forgot all the acronyms you used, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's recorded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, someone um, can go back. Yeah, I don't yeah, know what but, I'm saying anyway. It's like no, a Will no. Ferrell uh, moment in... Uh, <laughs> It's blacked out what <laughs> anyway. um but but yeah like in terms of like you not i don't want to use the word convincing but you're trying to you're trying to get more talent you're trying to build your team is it that same kind of motivation that you would use for for potential investors or partners etc as you're trying to grow yeah i mean um, i think so i like if i'm out talking to people or i am encountering people who are looking to hire or looking to talk to employees or whatever again i, I think the concept the like clarity is good. Clarity is hard. Like it is easier to write a 10 page document than a one page document. You just spew all your ideas out there and you don't have to force clarity, but forcing clarity will make all the difference. Like the the rule of thumb I always coach people on is one concept per slide. Like if you're going to have a slide deck, have 30 slides with one concept each instead of 10 slides with three or four concepts each, and you'll lose people. Like keep it simple, keep it clear, and you will end up in a much better place. And that will be true for everyone. Like if you're giving a hard message to someone, I mean, you're not going to hopefully use slides to deliver a hard message. Hopefully you're <laughs> face-to-face and, and talking to that person. But again, keep it simple and keep it clear. If you have to let someone go, which is a really hard conversation to have, it's much easier to speak clearly. I do that. I mean, I interview for McKinsey all the time. Nothing is more fun than giving someone the offer call and saying, hey, Sam, congrats. Like, it was so great to meet you earlier today, calling to offer you a chance to come join us. And nothing is harder than giving someone a turndown call. And what you learn over doing, over doing this in time is you have to say, you know, Sam, I'm really sorry. Uh, we are unable to offer you a job at this time and let the person process and then, you know, move on to offer the chance to give feedback or whatever. But it's, you can't, the more you mix the message, the harder it is to know if the person really understands what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think in talking to so many companies over the years, like, that itself is is a practice, right? Like oh, I yeah. see each opportunity to to introduce what my company does or whatever. Um, that's another chance to refine and, and gain that clarity. Yeah, a reason a good a good reason to go out and network, right? Practice your pitch. Go talk to people. See if it resonates. Ask for feedback. By the way, people are always happy to give you coaching and feedback, and it, it exposes yourself to be vulnerable. But it also might open a door for an even closer, more intimate relationship with whomever you're, you're building, uh, you know, a relationship with. Yeah. It does seem like vulnerability and, and openness and, and being open to feedback is, is one of the traits that you're, you're seeing from, I guess, quote unquote, successful companies. What other traits do you see for companies that have set themselves up for, for, I guess, longer term success? Ooh, that's hard. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's an element of, 
understanding sort of like values and purpose and, and all of that, like knowing, you know, I, I don't like using like cliche terms, values, purpose, North star, whatever, but like really making sure that people understand the direction you're marching in and why you're doing it, I think is really important. Um, organizations that have, uh, you know, the consulting phrase, like high degrees of alignment where people are actively like moving in the same direction tend to do really well. Um, that's been my experience. I also think authenticity really matters and that, you know, this is authenticity as you represent yourself to investors, to customers and to your own employees and frankly, within your own community. Um, and then I, I'm a big believer in this notion of holistic impact. And I know I come from sort of this like public sector, social sector background. I spend, you know, I, I serve tech clients. I also actually work with universities and state and local governments as well. Um, I just find it really interesting to have that kind of blend in my work. But, you know, if you think about holistic impact, what does it mean, not just on the financial metrics, but how about, you know, what kind of customer experience are you delivering? What kind of employee experience are you delivering? How are you thinking about your impact on communities and vulnerable populations and all of that? Like the more clarity you can have on those things, I tend to find companies end up being more successful. Um, and knowing where you make trade-offs. At times you have to make trade-offs and say, you know, we're going to do this thing because it's good for this thing and it's not good for that. But having the clarity of knowing where you're headed and why will allow you to make better decisions along the way. And that's not to stay to stubbornly follow the same path all the time. Pivoting is great. Reallocating resources and knowing when to cut losses is a, a marker of a really good early stage company. But, you know, pivoting to, again, achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve, like a, purpose, a purposeful pivot is more important than one that is, you know, uh, just doing it, you know, doing it blindly because things aren't working. Mm -hmm. Speaking about holistic impact, are you seeing that that's like a, a day one thing from founders or is this something that gets built along? Because I'm trying to imagine a scenario where, oh, I think I'm going to make these impact in all my customers and all my employees. I don't add any, right? Yeah. So, so, so is, is like, I would kind of argue like, okay, maybe there's not a point at on day yeah. one, but like, sure. how do you see those things progress as, as you start to build traction and, and build out your business? Yeah. I mean, you, you you adjust, you adapt, you, you recalibrate and think about it. But I think having a sense of where you want to build is always helpful. Mm. Um, you don't have to, you know, write out a document and lock it in uh, a folder in a lockbox somewhere and open it up three years later and see if you achieved <laughs> it. But I think having a sense of where you want to go and who you are as a leader is important. Um, the other thing is you'll be happier. <laughs> you know, if you are being true to like your authentic self, if you, you know, if the things you care about are reflected in the work you're doing um, and you can identify your own values in the company you're building, I think you will be happier on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's, you know, just again, my own sort of anecdotal view, but yes, I mean, some of these things come into stage later. Like, yeah, I would not recommend, you know, like having some kind of like fancy ESG holistic impact scorecard, <laughs> you know, before you've raised money and don't have customers. But I think having a sense over time, how am I going to treat my, how am I going to treat my employees? You know, what kind of benefits really matter? You know, we've seen, uh, we've seen at least in the U S and I know it's different in Canada, but we've seen in the U S uh, I, I think I saw this number, right. But over the last two years, I think it's one, maybe it was 2 million more women have, like effectively permanently left the workforce than men. Um, and the largest driver for that is a lack of affordable childcare. 
you know, if, if you are committed to gender diversity and gender equity in your company and you want to have men and women in leadership positions, are you going to build a culture? Are you going to have HR benefits that allow people uh, to either pursue or have, you know, childcare subsidy or support? And again, it's a very specific example, but there are others as well, right? Like, what are the things you want to commit to that, you know, you think will in- improve the fabric of your company? And you can always be thinking about them, even if you can't implement them until you're actually hiring. Yeah. And just as a side note for, for those of you that are listening here live or, or later, uh, Mike and his team do have a, uh, I would call it a paper. You guys call it an article. It's 42 pages long. <laughs> um, but it's, talk, it's talking about the, the insights of the economic opportunity in America. Um, it is a really interesting read if you guys have the time, if you guys are looking at expanding your teams into America, particularly, um, I, I can tell um, your team worked really hard on it. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, if, if you actually don't want to read a full 42 page report, um, we published an article that's like almost like a charticle or a listicle. It's like the 10 things you need to know. So that's like the one page version. And I'm sure we can share that out later. So that might be, For that sure. might be like the try that first. And then if you're really interested, you can read the 42 page report, but yeah, that was uh, that was an important piece of work I think we did last year and excited. I give you a little uh, early insight. We're going to publish again in the spring, probably April or May with an update with now a year's worth of sort of longitudinal data to see if the same insights are holding true or not. Sounds good. Um, yeah, I'll, for, for Launchpad and Maple members, I'll make sure that you guys get the links um, and we'll, we'll kind of share that with everybody. Speaking of, of work, when I was kind of trying to do some research and do my due diligence for you, one of the things that, that you helped establish was what's called a council of CEOs in New York city, um, yeah. specifically to focus on what we call the, the future of work. First of all, can, can you describe what like the goals were a little bit and what you were trying to hope to achieve there? Yeah. Let's start with the future of work. What does that mean? Um, the future of work is a loaded term. Uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So what we are thinking of specifically when we talk about that, this is not like, you know, the office of the future. We're not talking real estate. We're not talking about having, uh, you know, open floor plans or whatever, right? It, what we're talking about future of work is very specific, which is what are the impact of automation and digitization on the skills needed in the workforce and therefore how will jobs change? Um, and so if you go even further back, we published research a couple of years ago through the McKinsey Global Institute around this exact issue. And what you see is basically, uh, at the time, I think it was counter to the narrative, although I think this has become quite clear, that automation and digitization are not going to necessarily bulk replace jobs, but it's going to change the nature of work. So by that, I mean, you know, something like 70% of jobs will see almost half or more of the skills required in that job change over time because digitization or automation will replace the lower level skills. These are things like I work in a call center and my job is to like take in a call, log a bunch of data, hit send, possibly on two or three screens, possibly using like two or three different backend databases. Now that we have automation and bots and other things, I can take in the call, you know, fill in a little bit of data, press one button, and it'll automate, populate everything for me, right? So what does that do? That frees me up to have more time. It frees me up to work on other things. And it frees me up to have to actually be using almost higher order skills to succeed in my job. And so as we think about the nature of work changing, and we think about 
what jobs are going to be growing in the future versus which jobs are going to be less required in the future because maybe it's you know if half the job can be automated over time companies are going to replace some of the workers to gain some efficiency um what does that mean? So we got together a group of companies in New York. We got 30 or so CEOs together. We're now growing hopefully to 50 or more. And we asked ourselves, what could we do about this? What, what is the gap that we are seeing um, and how can we make a difference? And so I like to position it as twofold. Number one, companies see a labor shortage and particularly for these in-demand jobs and in-demand skills of the future. Think data science, think cybersecurity, cloud computing, uh, Web3 is going to end up there. Uh, there are not enough uh, developers in the Web3 space. Mm-hmm. Um, like There are in-demand jobs that pay what we would call family-sustaining wage, uh, you know, family-sustaining wages. And these companies do not have enough talent available to fill their, their demands in the future. So problem one is an HR talent problem. And how do we fill that? Problem two is, especially true in New York and especially true in the U.S., um, although true in many places too, uh, the gains of the last 30 years, the economic prosperity of the last 30 years has accumulated to a very small number of people and has left a large number of people behind. Um, You know, low-income New Yorkers have not seen wage growth in 20 or 30 years. Low-income New Yorkers don't have access to white-collar jobs at companies like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. It's just not how it's worked historically. And so... If we want to be in a healthy, vibrant, growing city in New York, and we want to solve this labor problem, what do we do or this talent problem? And so what we've done is we've established this council and we are building bridges from employers to education, both at the uh, high school level and at the college level. And we are grooving new pathways basically from education to work. So employers are working with educators to redesign curriculum redesign learning experiences, putting people into micro-credential programs or apprenticeship programs, but the apprenticeship of the future, not like a trades apprenticeship to be a plumber or an electrician, but an apprenticeship to be a data scientist or a software engineer and saying, come join these programs and we will hire you. We will hire you into internships and we'll hire you into full-time jobs and you will be on a very different path. Now, the beauty of working with New York City public schools uh, and then eventually the CUNY system, which is the public college system in New York, is that we have access to a uh, largely uh, more diverse, lower income population. And so we're able to actually achieve sort of these twin missions of solving the talent problem by seeking talent in non-traditional places. And we can solve the sort of, uh, I guess, the inequality challenge by giving access to people who have not traditionally had access. So we're in the early years, we're in the early days of this thing, but so far it's been really successful. We're really proud of the work we're doing. Um, you can probably hear it in my voice, but I'm, I'm personally very proud of the work we're doing and I'm excited to see where it goes. I think this idea of what, what's called work-based learning and sort of the workforce development community of actually giving people paid work and allowing them to get academic credit for it. So embedding it in their curriculum is a really interesting idea. It's built off of sort of a European model popular in Germany and Switzerland. Um, and I think could be a really interesting way to solve some of these issues more broadly. Mm-hmm. And and how long are these, or I guess in this example, the program that you're talking about? Um, it depends. So we have like micro-credential courses for CUNY students of so the city universities of New York 
they do a like 100 hour intensive course either in January or over the summer in one of eight different job areas. Actually, I think it might be 12 now, um, but eight or 12 job areas that sort of employers have identified. And that's like the shortest version. You do a month of intensive coursework. You basically get a micro credential or a certificate in an area that says I've done X, you know, uh, software engineering credential. Um, and then you're sort of prioritized for internship interviews. So that's like, I guess the lower, uh, the lower commitment option for a student, a higher commitment option might be a two or three year apprenticeship where you say, I'm going to go in, you know, starting as a junior in high school. And instead of taking classes from, I don't know, eight to three every day or whatever the school days are, I'm actually going to carve out five hours a week, my first year, 10 hours a week, my second year and 15 hours a week, my third year, and actually go work at a company in a real job and, and get real paid work experience as part of my academic uh, graduation requirement. Yeah. And, and I guess along those same lines, this is a kind of a two-part question, I guess. First is like, are you seeing other than, you know, obviously your, your work with, with this in CUNY and a couple other schools, um, are you seeing impact made through, through, I guess I call them developer boot camps. I think that's, that's become the term kind of over the years. Yeah. It's, it's like a four month program, eight month program, whatever. And, and again, the goal is to get people active in the workplace faster. Um, are you seeing impact with those? And I think the other, other topic that, that kind of roams around in my head right now is, is the no code industry. Um, are you seeing the impacts from, from where you're standing in terms of either of those things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's spot on. So the Jobs Council itself has started its, you know, we're two years in or so, and we're focused on the formal education system in New York to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I can't speak on behalf of the Jobs Council because I'm just participating, but uh, <laughs> the, but I assume at some point in the future, the vision will be to expand to sort of, you know, whether it's developer boot camps or other community-based organizations providing training and other services to help people who maybe are either at different stages in their career or don't need, you know, aren't enrolled in formal education or whatever it might be. Um, and, and there's a ton of examples of developer boot camps being, being successful. Um, I'm a big fan of them. I think they're, they're a great way to learn a set of skills. I think the challenge is how do you make the linkage at the end to an actual job? And so I think, you know, if you're asking someone to invest time and money and resources to go through a boot camp you know, it's helpful to have a clear sort of reward on the back end. So I think that that's one. Um, and then, yeah, no code, I think is really interesting. I, I personally have not spent as much time there, but I see a ton of potential and I imagine there's a ton of really great stuff going on there. If anyone has any examples, by the way, please do put them in the chat. Cause I'm always happy to, to learn more myself uh, on mm-hmm. these topics. I think we have actually two no code companies. Uh, I don't know if both of them are on, but, but maybe, awesome. maybe it's a chance to shill everybody for people live. Um, the second part of my question, though, was I think as you were talking about automation, talking about the future of work, I think I think people listening are are one of two camps, either a they're they're a developer themselves, and and you know the world is their oyster, and there's millions of opportunities out there for there, or b they're nervous because they're trying to hire these people, right, and they're trying to scale and grow their teams, and they understand that that there is definitely a shortage in in um, in talent. Um, what kind of recommendations do you have for people, particularly, um, you know, looking to build out their developer teams in, in, I guess, the current state? And what are you seeing people do? Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it's hard, right? And people are competing for talent and salaries and benefits and other things are getting almost to the point of being outrageous. Like, I can't even imagine like high-end engineering talent, like how much they get paid at this point, uh, especially ones who are coming out of college and don't have real experience. But 
number one, like don't restrict yourself. You know, I feel like in the past we've all used proxies, like, you know, does this person have a four-year degree or not as a way to gate whether or not people should get jobs? Like you need to throw those things out and, and be willing to look, um, and be willing to look at a full spectrum of talent opportunities, like look in your backyard, other community colleges or elsewhere. Can you go and actually go meet with like the computer science or data science staff or faculty and understand, do they have promising students? You know, are there people who are coming through the program you can engage with early and you may surprise yourself um, and find talent in unexpected places. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you triggered a, I think it was a quote from, from Malcolm Gladwell book. I can't remember which one, but it was talking about comparing, comparing like a, a middle of the yard student at Harvard to say like a top student at a community college and seeing like how their, their career trajectories rolled out. Um, if you can find it, um, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll link it later. I think it was David and Goliath was the book. Um, really interesting experiment. Um, yeah. Um, I think, I think and some questions it looks like. Yeah, it does look like we have some questions. So, so it sounds like you've triggered the the Web three folks. Uh, <laughs> uh, one person's asking, uh, "What is your take on crypto in the space or creator community?" So, the example there that's pretty specific is that we've got a platform like Shutterstock um, for for creators to mint their own NFTs, which can be bought by brands. Um, according to your experience, yeah. are brands ready for crypto? Uh, yes and no. Um... <laughs> and I'll, I'll, let me explain my thought on this a little bit. In Web two, so it, now I'm going to do the consultancy thing and, and give you a framework. But it, just try to visualize what I have in my head here. On <laughs> one side, you have consumers. In the middle, you have companies, and on the other side, you have creators. In Web two, most of that value in that ecosystem you know, consumers are buying through a middle, you know, either a marketplace or a company or, or some kind of intermediary, Label. something that was done by a creator, right? Yep. In web two, most of that value accrued to the middle intermediary part of that sort of three-part framework. In web three, the rewards are more evenly distributed, if not circumventing that middle, that middle step. So I think there are innovative brands out there who understand that Web3 is coming whether they want it to or not and are trying to find ways to meaningfully participate and protect some of their share of the revenue by getting in early and participating um, and realizing that their role has to change. They have to actually be creators and they have to be participants or consumers themselves if they want to accrue revenue. Um, I think there are others who look at this and are fearful and say, gosh, we're about to be disintermediated. If, if creators can directly reach consumers and consumers can actually earn rewards by participating and creators can earn rewards by creating and seeing long tails of revenue from resale or whatever else, um, the value of the marketplace itself, the value of the intermediary or the company or the brand actually maybe goes down. So you see a mix. I don't think there's a yes or no, but I think the it's it's a great question. And I think, you know, you sort of have to feel it out. Like some companies are ready to go and some are not. I mean, we're seeing companies like Nike and Adidas making big moves in this space. I think we're going to see more as well. Um, and I also would prepare yourself that it's going to be bumpy and rocky because at the end of the day, the people who are making decisions at those companies uh, on these topics tend to be older and less well-versed in this technology. And they're not going to know necessarily how to authentically participate. Um, hopefully they're being smart and they're hiring, you know, young savvy folks like yourself to lead these teams. But um, if they're making big bets, they may not know exactly what they're making big bets on. And so I expect it to be rocky for, for quite a while. 
Yeah, I think uh, Budweiser is another one that comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. Pepsi, yeah. I think, did the the mics. Like, there are, people are trying. It's just a question of whether or not whether or not it works. Yeah, and I, and I definitely because because I mean, you and I are both big sports fans behind behind the wheel. So so I remember like one of my favorite players, Damian Lillard. Um, when when NFTs first started, he launched a collection for himself. Um, but it was I honestly think he got some bad advice. Um, but it was very much like a, just buy this, give him some money. And then here's a shoe or something like that. Um, which is way more than you would spend on actually buying his shoes. Um, but, but I think, I think if you're looking into that, that realm, um, I think thinking longer term is really important in this, in this particular example, um, just because there's, there's going to be so many short term cited projects and, and you're going to see large brands do them too, I think. Um, Yeah. So another question is talking more about architecture with, with, with web two and web three, right? So he's like, um, James here is asking, would you recommend migrating from a web two to web three architecture? Um, this is going to get very specific. So, so we'll see how long we can follow along. But, uh, if you have a B2B SaaS, uh, you have some customers, you're still early. Um, but would you, would you recommend kind of making that jump in architecture now? Um, because obviously, you know, you can, you can there's data privacy security all these kind of things um is it worth the time and effort yeah i mean it's it's a great question i don't have a like a blanket answer for you to be honest but if i were trying to solve the problem in your shoes i think i'd ask myself who my customers are and are they themselves ready so this is a little bit of a customer back answer but you probably know who your B2B customers are, you know what segment they are, you know how forward thinking they might be on tech and willingness to adopt. And so if you believe your end customer is willing to adopt, I think then, yeah, maybe it is worth making an investment in the architecture early and, and getting ahead of it. You know, if you're selling into a customer segment that is maybe less uh, less forward thinking or less willing to take a leap on something new, um, you know, maybe, maybe wait a bit. The, you know, the nice thing about B2B is you can usually pretty quickly survey your audience. Um, it's harder than B2C in some cases, but it's a much smaller universe. So, you know, <laughs> you, you need to find the right buyer, which is hard. Um, but if you can find the right buyers within companies who are actually purchasing your product, you know, you need to talk to 50 or hundred of them and you'll get enough data points to know where they're at in terms of that. So when I, when I try to solve these types of problems, the first thing I do is try to get customer data. And that usually informs how I think about what the right choice is. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And just more on a general level from where you're standing, like, I think it's clear that, that you have, have personal and professional mm-hmm. interests in web three, like what about it is, is so interesting to you and how are you seeing it shape could be your, 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 your clients now could be clients that you have in the future. Like what, what is, what is the big deal about it that kind of excites you from your perspective? Yeah. It, you know, personally, it is a chance to participate in what I hope will be sort of the next big, I don't know, tech innovation or revolution in the sense that, you know, in 2000, the internet boom, uh, lots of value was created, lots of value was then destroyed. And then lots of value was created coming out of the, out of the, you know, the, the crash, but, you know, think about the companies, the brands, the opportunities that were created in the late nineties, mid nineties, early two thousands as the internet really went mainstream. I think this is another opportunity to be at sort of the forefront of a big, you know, generational shift in technology. And so this is like the, you know, presumably once in your professional life opportunity to get involved in something like this, where the core industry you work in is seeing the potential for, for upheaval. 
it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be rocky. It may not happen tomorrow. It may happen over the course of many years, but um, the chance to participate in that, I think is both personally and professionally satisfying. The opportunities for my clients are wide and varied. And so I think, you know, within the context of McKinsey, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I, I have a ton of colleagues who know probably as much or even more than I do uh, on Web3 specifically. And so I'm still learning. I'm still trying to understand all the use cases and what does it mean, you know, if you take a distributed ledger approach to financial services, what does that mean? If you think about the creator economy, what does that do to consumer brands? I mean, there's all, all types of stuff uh, that, that will change. And, you know, for me, it's the idea of being sort of at the forefront and, and trying to be on the, uh, you know, in the room for conversations where companies are forming or reforming will be really exciting. Mm-hmm. And then not to turn you in kind of a Web3 apologist, but I guess I'm, I'm gonna in, in a second. Um, but but like, where, what are you seeing that that founders that are listening here, maybe they have a SaaS, maybe they work in, I think fintech is, is obvious connections, but maybe maybe they have marketplaces. Um, maybe they're, they're very strictly B2B and in sectors that you know, still trying to understand web two. Um, what, how, how much attention should they be paying to the space and why should they be doing that? Yeah. Someone told me the other day, <laughs> I don't know who the quotes originally from, but it's like, if, if everyone, you know, is telling you, you should pay attention to something uh, like maybe you don't need to, but if everyone is telling you, you need to pay attention to something and that idea is crazy, you really should be paying attention. <laughs> um, and, and like, I think that's kind of true in this instance. Again, I don't know who that quotes from, but someone, I heard it the other day and it stuck with me. Um, the whole notion of web three is kind of crazy. Like if you really think about it, it feels like, gosh, like, I mean, from an NFT, like the right click save, like, you know, crowd to, oh, like we're going to put value back in the hands of creators or, you know, in, in consumers, like we're going to reward you for participating. But if you actually ask yourself, a lot of these are actually just new versions of the same thing that have existed. So, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, token airdrops to people who are participating in a marketplace, that's no different than a loyalty program. We've been doing airline and hotel miles forever, right? Or whatever, airline miles, hotel points forever. We're just now applying it in different ways. And Web3 gives you a way to track, measure, and irrefutably prove that someone participated. So I, I actually think a lot of these are new or are actually old ideas repackaged and using technology and hopefully it'll be more seamless. And so I would encourage you to at least consider it. I, I actually don't think that Web3 is right for every industry or every use case right now. I really don't. But you know, take a look at what actually is happening and what's being built. And, you know, see if it makes sense. Maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense for your customers yet. Maybe it doesn't make sense for the idea you're working on. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I'd keep an eye on it. And I'd say, what can I learn from this? What are the, what are the lessons learned from companies that are doing well? Um, you know, uh, you know, I'll give one other example on this. So, um, there's a really good podcast out there called uh, Modern Finance. Now I think Proof. It's um, Kevin Rose, who is a venture capitalist at True Ventures in Portland. Um, and he interviewed Alexis Ohanian, who's the former CEO of Reddit. And they were talking about sort of the Web 2 to Web 3 shift. And they're talking about it again in like a very crypto forward NFT, you know, view. But it, you go listen to it and, and actually ask yourself, like, what, what's different between Web 2 and Web 3? Web2 companies, the Reddits, the Twitters of the world, 
there was this promise of social media as like a two-way form of communication between companies and the ability to reward your consumers by having active dialogue. It kind of works. It kind of doesn't. And companies hired a bunch of social media managers and, you know, actively man their Instagrams and their Twitters and their Facebooks. And there is real dialogue, but it's mostly in the form of customer care. It's mostly, Hey, my flight got delayed and I need, you know, I'm mad and I want free miles or whatever, right? Like it's not actively like rewarding participation. Web3 allows you to reward participation. It allows you to reward loyalty and consumption and other things. And so like if, if the Twitters and the Reddits were maybe ahead of their time, you know, maybe the lesson is though, like community management, community engagement, like Web3 can allow that in a different, more authentic way because you can literally track and measure and reward people who are engaging. And so I don't know what that means for all the startups you all are working on, but I think there's an interesting thought there around what could it mean to actively engage with your audience, your customers, and potentially build deeper bonds of loyalty over time by using the blockchain. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big fan of this, this concept of champions, understanding who you're, I, I wouldn't say like your, your best customers, because maybe that's, that's the customers who spend the most money, but like the customers who, who really believe in what you're doing, right. They're going out telling people about, about what you're doing. Like, like I would have loved that 10 years ago. Like my, I think I've gone to this tangent before. I love this uh, app called path um, is made by ex Facebookers. And it was like a private social network. And I told like, I onboarded 50 people easily <laughs> um, to, to path. And, and like, it would have been nice to be like, Hey, you're onboarding a lot of people. Like let's talk. Right. Um, yeah. And and I think, I think web three kind of presents an opportunity for that. Hey, so we're just right up against the, the hour now. Appreciate all of the time that you spent with us. Um, for yourself, though, um, how can people reach out to you? What are you kind of interested in having conversations with? Uh, what's the best approach? Um, I don't want everybody that's listening to this this now or later yeah, no. to just spam you. But, uh, but find me on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. Message me there. Find me. You can email me. My, I mean, truly on McKinsey.com on the website. If you look for my name, there's like a web form. I get that email. Like as soon as you fill it in, it goes to my inbox and I can reply. I am happy to chat. Like it's for me, part of what I love about my job is the opportunity to do things like this. I, I actually wish this was even more interactive. I mean, not that I didn't love talking to you, Sam, this is wonderful. And thank you for <laughs> having me, but more, I, you know, I enjoy meeting people and hearing your stories and um, yeah. So feel free to reach out, feel free to, to set something up. I'll, I'll find time. I'm busy at work. I may not be able to talk right away, but you know, we'll find time and, and we'll get to know each other and you know, who knows what that leads to. So for thanks sure. for having me. And this was, this was great. Sure. Did you drop your Twitter handle by the way? Uh, I did not. It's um, I can put it in the chat or someone else can, but Perfect. it's, uh, but it's uh, Mike underscore Lazar. Perfect. So, All right. So, so if, if you want to connect with him, I think Twitter is the first best option. Um, thank you so much, Mike, for, for your time. Really appreciate it. I'll yeah, let you get back to your family and your work. All, All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, take care, everybody.